0: Welcome to the voyages and travels of the ambassadors, the epic story of a 17th century trade expedition from Germany to Persia that failed so completely its leader was publicly executed upon his return. This is Episode 5, To the Volga. It is now the spring of 1636. For the past two and a half years, our ambassadors from Holstein have traveled to Moscow twice over land and sea. Not only have they been shipwrecked, shot, kicked by horses, and thrown off sleds into the snow, they've been attacked by Russian insects and German mercenaries, they've partied with Polish nobles, with Swedish ambassadors, and with working-class Russians on the frontier. They arrive in Moscow in late March with the usual diplomatic motorcade and the usual diplomatic feast. Ambassadors Brueggemann and Crucius are negotiating the company's departure to Persia, imploring the Tsar to confirm everything previously agreed with Duke Frederick and invoking the family ties between the two men. On April 3, Crucius addresses the Tsar on behalf of the Duke. The abbreviated version is, His princely excellency now requests your Tsarist majesty as a friend, uncle, brother-in-law to grant us a secret audience to hear our plea and to act upon it favorably. Crucius notes that Frederick is the heir to Norway, the Duke of Schleswig, Holstein, Stormarn, and Dipmars, and the Count of Oldenburg and Delmenhorst, and he repeats three times the familial salutations of uncle and brother-in-law. Although the house of Holstein-Gottorp did produce Princess Sophie of Anhalt-Zerbst in 1729, the great-great-granddaughter of our Duke Frederick, who would become Catherine the Great of Russia in 1762, I can find no evidence that Frederick's appeal to Mikhail was anything but a term of endearment. I put the question to the Almanach de Gotha, which has published Genealogies of the Great Houses of Europe since 1763, and will report back in a future episode if I learn anything new. Frederick had 16 children with Duchess Marie Elizabeth of Saxony. Their first daughter, Sophie August, was great grandmother of Catherine, another became the mother of the Queen of Denmark, and another married King Charles X of Sweden. Suffice it to say that the House of Holstein Gottorp, founded in 1544, was one of Europe's most powerful early modern dynastic families. On Easter Day, April 17, Secretary Olarius informs us that Easter is the greatest of all Russian festivals. And Moscow is full of merchants selling colored eggs, which the Muscovites purchase as gifts for one another. For two weeks, when citizens meet on the street, they kiss each other, saying, Christ is risen, and replying, He is risen indeed. No person, Olarius tells us, regardless of age, sex, or any other condition, dares to refuse the kisses or the eggs. That are presented to him. The Tsar visits the city prison before he goes to church on Easter Day. He orders every prisoner to be given a colored egg and a sheepskin coat, exhorts them to rejoice that Christ died for their sins, and makes sure the prison gates are closed when he leaves. The greatest rejoicings, Olarius says, occur in common drinking houses, which are full of all sorts of persons men, women, ecclesiastics, and laity who gets so drunk that the streets are paved with drunkards. The Patriarch of Moscow prohibits such behavior and orders all the taverns to be closed on Easter Day, but few obey him. On April 29, Brueggemann has a private audience with the Tsar's council, and Olerius writes that what he treated about we could never learn till afterward by the charge put against him at our return home. After several more meetings, on May 20, the embassy is given permission to depart for Persia whenever they wish. The date is set for June 30, and the official passport is signed June 29, 1636. Boats are prepared for the dangerous trip downriver. Muscovites are hired for ordinary jobs. Several cannons that fire stone projectiles are added to the brass cannons brought from Germany. And the Tsar provides soldiers for protection. Valerius quotes three lieutenants, four sergeants, and 23 soldiers, Scots and Germans. The passport allows 85 members of the embassy, with permits to hire two experienced Volga River pilots and up to 11 more Russian or German volunteers along the way, none of whom may be brigands or runaway slaves. On the way back from Persia, the Tsar orders that the embassy may not resort to deception, robbery, or violence against the Russian people, and that the ambassadors shall pay for all their own provisions. As the ambassadors head down the Moscow River toward the Volga, the Cossacks are attacking the Ottomans, the Ottomans and Persians are attacking each other, the Ottomans and Russians are recovering from a failed attack against the Poles, and the Tatars are conducting yet another in their long history of attacks on Muscovy, which began in 1507. The most recent campaign begins in 1632 and only ends in 1637. Cossack, or Kazakh, is a term borrowed from the Arabic and Turkic word for adventurer, but it also means nomad soldier, free and independent person, guard, or even vagrant. The first Cossacks were 15th-century robber bands of Tatars who roamed the steppe and occasionally served as cavalry for Moscow. You will remember that in episode 3, Olerius mentions an embassy of Tatars in Moscow and has nothing but bad things to say about them. They are allegedly a cruel and malevolent people who live to the south and appear to do little except kidnap the Tsar's subjects and sell them in the slave market of Kaffa, the largest and most important Crimean port in the late Middle Ages, which today is the city of Theodosia on the coast of the Black Sea. The slave raids predate the Tatars beginning in the 1200s and focus largely on the steppes of Ukraine and Russia north of the Black Sea. Since capturing Constantinople in 1453, Ottoman sultans frequently sponsor slave raids and even have a word for the practice. Slaves are a blood tax owed to the empire. In the Tatar campaign of 1571, some 80,000 Russians were killed, 150,000 were taken as captives, and Moscow was burned. In the 1600s alone, an estimated 200,000 Slavic Christians were kidnapped from Russia. In the spring of 1655, an overproduction of 52,000 captured slaves caused prices to decline in Kaffa, a problem that was only solved by selling more of them in Istanbul. In the year 1758, 40,000 were taken from Moldavia, and the last major raid occurred in 1769 with the capture of 20,000. Russian armies under Catherine the Great inflicted heavy losses on the Ottomans between 1768 and 1774, and she annexed the Crimea in 1783, thus bringing to an end almost 300 years of Tatar invasions. A thorough treatment of slavery in the region is obviously beyond the scope of this podcast, but in Book 6, Valerius discusses Isfahan, the capital of Persia, and notes that Tatars who live around the Caspian Sea also sell slaves to the Persians. So this is the territory through which our ambassadors must navigate, a territory contested by the Muscovites, the Ottomans, the Cossacks, and the Tatars, and inhabited by the Slavs. The word Slav comes from the Byzantine Greek word sklabos, and the medieval Latin word sclavus, and refers to one of the people who inhabit most of Eastern Europe, The English word slave, meaning person who is the chattel or property of another, was originally spelled S-L-A-V because of the many Slavs sold into slavery by their conquerors. And, like it or not, there is a stereotype about the Russians, that they are a people born to slavery and ruled by tyrants, which originated in the earliest European descriptions of Russia. Although the Poles, Lithuanians, Baltic Germans, and the Scandinavians had been in continuous contact with Muscovy since the 11th century, almost no Europeans traveled to Russia in medieval times, and those who did were just passing through on the way to Mongolia or China. The Mongol destruction of Kiev in the 13th century further isolated Russia from Europe. But Byzantium was conquered, the Mongol horde disintegrated and Muscovy emerged as an important force in northeastern European politics. In 1472, Pope Sixtus IV arranged the marriage of Tsar Ivan III and Sophia Paleologos of Byzantium, the niece of the last eastern Roman emperor. The hope was that Russia, which in many respects is what remains of the Byzantine Empire, would reunite with Rome and oppose the Turks and it is no coincidence that Europeans began to travel to Muscovy around this time. Merchant traffic to the Hansa town of Novgorod was followed by Italian and German craftsmen who built a Renaissance palace for Ivan, by the Greeks who found their way to Orthodox Muscovy after the fall of Constantinople, and by the retainers in Sofia's entourage. European diplomats began to travel to Russia in force. Swedish, Livonian, Lithuanian, Italian, Hungarian, Moldavian, and those from the Holy Roman Empire, and they all issued various kinds of reports to their masters back home. Christian Baumhofer, a Livonian supporter of the Teutonic Knights, solicited Rome's aid against the Tsar. In 1501 and 1506, he helped persuade the Pope to allow the preaching of crusades against the Russians, whom he said were not Christians, but barbaric and cruel heathens. Tsar Ivan II was a tyrant, and, worst of all, Russia was secretly aligned with the Tatars and the Turks to bring Christendom down. The Livonians were not alone in tarring the image of the Muscovites. Since the mid 15th century, Polish clerics had argued that the Russian Orthodox Church was the enemy of Christendom. Jacob Piso, a Hungarian working for the Pope and the Bishop of Rome, wrote one of the first accounts in which Russia was a place of universal slavery and barbarity. In 1514, he observed the Battle of Orsha between Russian and Polish armies, but he never set foot on Russian soil. Piso's accounts said that the Muscovites would flee in all directions if they were not terrified by the sure tyranny of Moscow, that they were oppressed by the most cruel laws, and that all are born to this condition, all grow to it, and all are reduced to it. One of the most important early works was written in 1549 by Sigismund von Herberstein, who had been the Holy Roman Empire's representative in Moscow in 1517. Of the Muscovites, he wrote, All confessed themselves to be the slaves of the prince. Herberstein wasn't the only one to see it that way, but at least he'd been there. In the first quarter of the 16th century, travel instructions began to appear in print. The first such book was printed in 1518, and the genre became known as the art of travel after a book of the same name. The voyages and travels of the ambassadors simultaneously took that art to a new level and contributed to the stereotype of the Russian people. It is not a history book in the strict sense, but a clear-eyed reading of history tells us that the Tsars were no more tyrannical, and certainly not less, than any absolutist monarch in Western Europe. Whether the Russians are more inclined to slavery than any other people is for you to decide. Polaris ends Book 2 with a description of Moscow, noting its latitude and longitude, its circumference, and that, despite being burned to the ground by the Polish army in 1611, it now contains more than 40,000 houses and is one of the greatest cities in Europe. The streets are handsome, broad, and dirty. Nobles live in one of the city's four quarters and have homes built of stone. The homes of peasants are built of wood and covered with the bark of trees, sometimes have sod roofs and are very combustible. Homeowners are careless, though, and the disorders of their housekeeping are such that hardly a week passes without fire, which regularly turns whole streets into ashes. The city guards carry pole axes, a medieval weapon with a long shaft ending in a combination of axe, hammer, and pick. When fire breaks out, these tools are used to break apart adjoining houses, thus creating a fire break, which is better than trying to put the fire out. People whose homes burn down can visit the market, choose a ready-built replacement, what we would call a manufactured home, and in a short time have it taken down, Transported and set up in the same place where the former stood. The main market is in the square outside the castle, and every profession has its own street, which is so much the greater convenience in that a man does, of a sudden, cast his eye on all that he can desire. If you want your hair cut, you go to the hair market, where the streets are so covered with hair that a man treads as softly as if it were on a feather bed. Most of the principal merchants and Muscovian lords have their houses in this quarter. If you need a bell or a cannon, you go to the quarter known as the Tsargorod, or City of the Tsar, where Muscovites as expert as the best Germans have learned the mystery of founding. Bakers and their warehouses for wheat are also located here, along with the royal stables. Most of the poor live across the Moscow River in the fourth quarter of the city, named Strelitsa Slavoda, after the Tsar's musketeers. The barracks were originally built here because many of the soldiers were foreign mercenaries, and thus strangers to the Russians. Others call it the quarter of drunkards, because these strangers were, as Hilarius tells us, more inclined to drunkenness than the Muscovites. Thus ends Book 2, and Book 3 is a lengthy treatise of some 60,000 words on the history, geography, climate, and peoples of Muscovy. There are some delightful and sordid tales in this section, but none of them pertain directly to the voyage. I will mention only that Ilarius says winter is so piercing that no fur can prevent the nose, ears, feet, and hands from freezing. And he confirms the observations of others that drops of saliva are completely frozen before they reach the ground. And in contrast, the summers are as hot as the winters are cold, and the days are 18 hours long, although some regions still have ice and snow even in the hottest months. And so we skip to Book Four, which begins with a drinking story. No sooner has their boat set off down the Moscow River when one Boris Ivanovich Morozov, with whom the ambassadors had gone falcon hunting, comes aboard, spends the entire night drinking with the gentlemen of the mission, and cries tears of affection and wine when he bids them farewell the next morning. Meanwhile, the Russian boatmen, who row in alternating crews of eight, and Olarius calls our Muscovian mariners, have been drinking vodka. It makes them more lively and lusty than ordinary, and so the boat makes fifty miles overnight, and another 25 miles by the next evening. They come to Kolomna on the evening of July 2, a city which sits at the confluence of the Moscow and Oka rivers. The city, which has been sacked four times by the Tatars, is a key stronghold on Moscow's southern frontier and part of the Great Abitus border, a wooden fortification stretching for hundreds of kilometers that protects Moscow from Tatar raiding parties. Hilarious says the city is of a considerable bigness and looks very delightful on the outside by reason of its towers and stone walls, which are not ordinary in Muscovy. Locals gathered to watch the boat pass by, perhaps because it has a rather tall roof. Whereas the covering of our boat was too high to pass under the bridge, they in a trice took off one of the arches to make us way, Valerius writes. Now on the Oka River, they pass through the city of Rezan on July 5. The original city, located some 30 miles downstream, was first recorded in 1095. It was destroyed in 1237 by the Mongols, sacked by Moscow in 1371, sacked by the Tatars in 1372 and 1378, taken by Moscow in 1521, and sacked by the Tatars again in 1568, after which it was moved to its present location. It was renamed Ryazan in 1778. Today, it is home to an elite unit of paratroopers and two military bases that were hit by Ukrainian drone attacks in 2022. A few miles further downriver, the ambassadors see a naked human body floating in the water, and the Russian boatmen say the person was probably murdered by Cossacks or fugitive slaves. On July 6, they see another dead body, Olarius calls them carcasses, and are told that murder is common hereabouts, and no one pays any attention to it. On the night of July 7, they arrive in Kasinogorod, the modern city of Kasimov, where they encounter the first Muslims of the trip, a young Tatar prince named Rez Ketsi, and his mother and grandfather, who live just outside the city in an old stone castle. Our ambassadors are told that some years ago, Tsar Mikhail asked the young man to become a Christian and marry one of his daughters. But since he was only 12 years old at the time, he declined. The ambassadors send two gentlemen to pay the family a visit with gifts of a pound of tobacco and a bottle of French brandy. In return, they receive two sheep, a barrel of mead, another of beer, and a third of vodka, along with some ice, some cream, and some fresh butter, which the prince's mother had made herself. A few days later, they reached the city of Murom. One of the oldest cities in Russia, its name appears in the Tale of Bygone Years, as early as 862 AD. Also known as the Russian Primary Chronicle, the book is a historical account of the Eastern Slavs to the second decade of the 12th century. Historians believe it was compiled in or around Kiev in the 1110s, and the earliest extant manuscript is from 1377. Before 1000 AD, Muram was an important trading post between the Volga and the Baltic Sea, and Olerius tells us it marks the beginning of territory settled by the Mordvin Tatars, loyal to the Tsar. As the boat approaches the city, lookouts spot a company of Crimean Tatars concealed in bushes along the riverbank, The groups exchange gunfire, but no one is hit on either side. They reach Nizhny Novgorod at the confluence of the Oka and Volga rivers on July 11, 1636. And here I need to make a correction. I said in episode 1 that the ambassadors needed to travel some 2,500 miles down the Volga River to the Caspian Sea, but the river is only 2,200 miles long. A modern route from Moscow to the Volga, and then downriver to Astrakhan, is approximately 1,500 miles. From Lübeck, about 3,200 miles. I was using some old notes and didn't recalculate the distance. Apologies for the error. As noted in Episode 3, Captain Cortes was sent to Novgorod in November 1634 to build two ships, but now only one is ready. Olarius tells us that the larger, 120-foot Friedrich is not quite finished by reason the Muscovian carpenters, whom the captain had employed about her, had not answered his expectation. But it is 40 feet wide, has three masts, a flat-bottomed design that draws only seven feet of water, twelve seats with two oars each for windless days, and many chambers and closets for the convenience of the ambassadors, the officers and the gentlemen of their retinue, and some iron and brass guns, and a great number of grenados and other firearms. And yes, a grenado is exactly what you think it is. A grenade made from a hollow iron ball, filled with gunpowder and various kinds of shrapnel, with a fuse sticking out of a hole. The second, smaller ship is what Oleris calls a double shallop. A sloop, probably with two short masts and a draft of two feet, to be used for adventuring into shallower water, and for ferrying the ambassadors to shore when needed. Alarius calculates their location at 56 degrees, 28 minutes, measures the Volga at 4,600 geometrical feet wide, and tells us the plan is to get moving before the waters of the river, swollen by the snowmelt of May and June, begin to recede and leave treacherous sandbars behind. Instead, they stay in the city for three weeks while the ship is finished, and entertain local dignitaries in a tent near the river. The ambassadors send Olarius and Mandelslo to have dinner with the governor, who asks if they are afraid of encountering the Cossacks, a barbarous and inhumane people more cruel than lions, and hopes that the military reputation of Germany will frighten off any Cossack attack. They set the departure date for July 30, 1636. In the next episode, we will find out how far down the river they get on the first day, how many kingdoms could be purchased for the value of all the anchors lost on the bottom of the Volga, and exactly how many Cossacks attack the voyages and travels of the ambassadors.